This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Tech Talk Online, sponsored by Stratford University. You can listen to Tech Talk Live in the Washington, D.C. area, Saturday mornings from 9 till 10 on the following frequencies. 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD2, and 1039 FM HD2. We thank you for listening to Tech Talk Radio. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. And as always, technology is on the move. Huawei has been charged with racketeering by Department of Justice. They are putting up the pressure on this Chinese company, believing that this is the the point of the spear in a spying conspiracy, mm-hmm. also in a uh, technology theft um, activity. We um, Ransomware is projected to hit someone in the world every 11 seconds in 2021. Wow. Now, and that's worse than it is in 2020. In 2020, I expected that. It's every 14 seconds. So we're going <laughs> to 2020. So next year it'll be every 11 seconds. You know, you know that. We'll talk about the statistics yeah. and how you need to protect yourself. This is this is the part of the show we call a tease. That's you don't want right. to give it all away now. No, we don't really no. don't. There was a voting app that was created, and it's been used in four states. Is this the one that was the problem in? Um... No, it's it, this it's is another one. This is another one that it's already been used in West Virginia. It's been used in a number of states, and MIT researchers discovered it had huge security flaws in it. Huh. So there's these guys are just are just trying to hum away. And of course, uh, this week we're going to feature uh, Cecil Green. He is the co-founder of Texas Instruments. Is it Cecil or Cecil? Cecil. You know, he's a Brit. Could Did be, not they pronounce it Cecil? Oh, then it's Cecil. Could be Cecil Green. I think we better check that. Jim. I think we should. I think. Uh, why don't we have the research department check that research? out when we? When you mean we, me? Yes, exactly. Okay. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. Glad to see he dragged himself out of the gutter yeah, and came to work today. I'm certainly glad he did. We got an email from Doug in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Dear uh, Doctor Shirts and Jim, can Who? you explain the following occurrence? Yeah, you know, normally I'm just doc. Yeah. Uh, I had a problem with my computer, and the producers of the program requested me to do a trace and send the log of the incident to them. Then they wanted me to use my Microsoft File Explorer to log into their FTP site and transfer the file. I had no idea that the Internet File Explorer could be used for, you know, connecting to the Internet. Are there any other interesting things that the File Explorer could do? Well... Uh, Doug, it is a clever way to connect to a remote FTP site, file transfer protocol site, where you want to upload things. And what you simply have to do if you want your – what they gave you the instructions to do is you have to map what's called an external hard drive. And so you say – you basically um, right-click on the button. You go to to my computer, right-click on the button. You'll say map an external drive. And then you put in the web address – 
of the FTP site, and then it will ask you for the username and the password, if it's password protected, and then you click click enter, and then it will assign a drive letter to it. And then when you are in the file explorer, you can actually look at the files in the FTP site. It becomes just like it's on your computer because you've mapped an external site to the local site. And then you can just take and copy a file from your computer to the FTP site very easily. But there are a few other things that File Explorer can do. I mean, if you want to open it quickly, you can just hit two keys, Windows plus E, and the File Explorer will open up. It's also, you can also use the Send To menu. If you highlight a file or highlight a group of files, right-click on the mouse, and you've got a different, different options to send those group of files or one file. You could send it to a Documents folder. You could create a zip file, a compressed file, like you could take 10 files, put them into a zip format, and then you could send that zip format to somebody, or you, you could, and then you can send the, the item as an email attachment. So it becomes a very nice, uh, nice way to transfer files. It also has advanced search. You know, have you ever, you're on your computer and it's hard to find stuff. Yeah. So if you go to search, click, you click on the advanced search button, and they've got all sorts of options Boolean operators, parameters, operators, and you can pick, you know, you want it between these dates, you want this kind of file, you want a file which is um, only within a certain size range. What You've got all sorts of options. Or you can say you want files where the date modified is within a date range. So you can pick all of that, and then you can do the search, and uh, and you'll, you'll be able to hone down on the files fairly quickly. And the nice thing is you can pin that search to the Start button, so next time you have to search for files, you, it's right there on your Start button. You just click on it, and it'll do the search. You don't have to recreate the search. You can also use <clears> – there are also a lot of filters uh, for finding files, You can, and you'll see all the filters that are listed across the – across the ribbon at the top, which is one of the nice things of the uh, File Explorer in, in Windows 10. And you can group files. So like you could say, I'd like to group all of the files that are in a certain size range or in a certain date range, and you can group them together. And, and then it makes it easier to find a file. So those are just a few of the things, but it's really a nice program, Windows File Explorer, especially the one in Windows 10. We got an email from Charlie in Kansas. Dear Doc and Jim, I read an article last night about... Two hard drives that were put in a RAID 0 configuration to speed up the disk access. They said RAID 0 can speed up your read and write by as much as 50%. Mm. But they said it's a little risky, but they didn't explain why. Can you explain? Charlie in Kansas. Well, RAID, Charlie, stands for... for uh, RAID stands for Redundant Array of Independent Disks. That's what it stands for. Redundant Array of Independent Disks. I knew you'd know that. Yeah, so you put... You, I thought it was bug spray. No, 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 not in this case. Okay. And so in this case, you have a RAID array of, of two disks. Now, if you want to have maximum write speed, you can, you can basically write... Every time you save to the two hard drives, you can write part of it to hard drive number one and part of it to hard drive number two. In other words, you stripe it across the two hard drives, and you'll, and you'll actually save much quicker because you're spreading it across two drives. The problem is if one drive fails, you lose all the data because it's been striped. So one drive fails, you lose everything. So your, your risks are, are doubled in terms of failure. You never want to use RAID 0 with two drives. You want to use RAID 1, and that's the mirroring mode. Now, that means you write to both drives at the same time. So if one drive goes out, it doesn't matter because the other drive has all the data, and you simply swap out 
the drive that failed, put in a new drive, and all the data from the drive that survived will just copy over to the first drive, ah. and, you're, and you're good to go. So RAID 2 is like always having a backup. I mean, RAID 1. So they're also RAID, like, five. They're different levels of RAID. Like, you, you, you could have six disks, you could have RAID 5, and then you're striping it across all five arrays. It, it does write faster, but you do it in a way so there's redundancy. So, so if you lose any one drive, you can reconstruct it. Some, some of them, if you could lose two drives, you could reconstruct it. So there are a lot. This is all designed to make the storage media more reliable ah. and safer. So I would never, ever recommend RAID Zero. No, never. Never. Ever. No. We got an email from David in New York. Dear Doc and Jim, I just got a new iPhone 11. Oh. Oh, gee, With I wonder face, who else uh, yeah. has a new iPhone 11. <laughs> With hmm. Face ID. Could that be? That's right. And I travel a lot. And, you know, sometimes at, at these border crossings, I don't want them to be a, open my phone with my face. Well, <laughs> if, if you're somewhere like at a border check or at a party where you don't think your face or thumbprint could be used against your will to unlock your iPhone, this is a problem at these border checks. And it turns out that if they can unlock your iPhone with face ID, it's really not covered by the law because you're, they're not requiring you to give a password, and then they can just look whatever's in your iPhone. Mm-hmm. And when so, you say, I know what you mean by yeah. opening your iPhone with your face, but yeah. it sounds potentially violent. Yeah, opening yeah, your phone yeah, you, with your you, face. You basically just look at it. And it's got face recognition. Oh, I, just, I, just, I just looked at my phone and it unlocked. How you, convenient. I haven't set that up on mine. Uh, so, so what you can do is, if you want to disable it, you can press the the button on the right, and the uh, which is the sort of the on off button, and then the the volume button. Two volume buttons are on the left. Do the volume up. So you hold down the volume up, and the on off button. Hold those down for you know uh, a few seconds, and and then either, it will either vibrate or else the 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 screen will come up that says you want to shut off the phone, and then at that point it's locked. You could just hit the on-off button again, and that screen will go away. And now, if anybody wants to get into your phone, they got to put in the code, and they don't actually have any right to force you to give them the code. Mm-hmm. But if you're in Mexico, you know they don't need no stinking badges. No, they don't. Yeah, they, they, just they make they, you do it. They, they they might make you do it. Um, I mean, I mean, you you could be. I mean, this face recognition. You could be at a party and fall asleep, and somebody could just open your phone with your face, and then boom, they could look through everything. So it's. It's dangerous. So the the face recognition thing is that only on the 11, or can you do that on earlier models? It's on the 10 and so the 11. I could do it with mine. I don't. I don't want to do it with mine. You have a 10. I do have a 10. Yeah, w- you didn't w- know that. I beat you for, uh, for a short while in is, history. You, I had a better phone. Than see, you. when they had the the home button, they used your fingerprint. Fingerprint. Yes. For the ID. Right. When they eliminated the phone button, they couldn't take your fingerprint. That's so right. they had to replace it with your face. Ah. See, that was the thing. And gotcha. so you probably did you set up the fingerprint? I never said – well, so the, the last phone I had, which was a 6S, because we both had the 6S, something happened early on in that phone's life. And you the, – the, isn't the, the, the home button uh, somehow connected to the, um, the uh, lightning plug? I don't isn't think so. Well, there, something, something happened. Or maybe it was the screen was replaced. Something happened, and once they do that, oh. the, the home button isn't able to do the fingerprint identification so thing. I, so I, I, use the, I use the fingerprint on my success uh, all the time. I didn't. I used it all the I time. I didn't. I didn't so, want to do that. But, you know, whenever I'm crossing but a border, I'll, 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 I'll turn this off. I'm going to make you know? a disclosure here. Yes. I don't have fingerprints. So there's no way I can okay. use yeah, it. Okay. Yeah, that's very good. Yeah. And so – so the thing is, there there have been court cases where the government cannot 
force you to incriminate yourself by giving them a code. I didn't know that. Yeah. On the other hand, if they can hold the phone in front of you and just and it opens up with just your face, there's nothing protecting you. Speaking of iPhones, did you hear the latest out of Baltimore and Catherine Pugh? You're aware of that mess. The mayor who was arrested. We've talked about her, right? Uh-huh, yeah. So uh, it came out yesterday. They talked about the uh, the sentence recommendations for her. When they when the feds busted into her house and started, uh, uh, you know, uh, accumulating boxes and evidence and everything, they asked for her cell phone. So, so she gave them her city cell phone. They said, no, 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 no. We want your personal cell phone. Well, it's not here. It's at my sister's in Philadelphia. One of the agents that dials her number into the phone and dials and they hear her phone ring. She t- she tucked it under the pillow when they kicked the door in. <laughs> and said, oh, so what's that? It's ringing under the pillow. <laughs> anyway. But see, they, they cannot make her give them the password. But they can make her give them the phone <clears throat> yeah. if they've got a warrant. Right? That's right. If they have a warrant. And then and then you have the big fight, whether Apple, and Apple's refused to help yeah. law enforcement, enforcement break into phones. That, yeah. Right? Yeah. So, but if she had on face recognition, they would just get the phone and point it at her face, and she couldn't stop them. Uh, so that's always Thus, an issue. Thus, because of all the criminal activity I'm involved in, yeah. I don't want to set up face you, recognition you've just on got, my phone. You, you, Jim, you've got to be careful. I you, do. You've, you've, got, you've, got, you've got to be careful, for Thank sure. Thank you for the advice, Doc. Yeah, we got an email from Alan in Missouri. Dear Doc and Jim, I am shocked at how much information there is about me on the web. Is there anything that I can do to remove this information? Alan in Missouri. I like the passion in your voice. <laughs> well, Alan, people find your site. have got lots and lots of information around you. They often have your address, your phone number, your email, your age. they got all your, your kids, your father, your whole family tree. They even include data from court documents and other public and government yeah. records. Now, there are, the common people finders include white pages, Spokio, Spokio, Ben Verified, and other similar sites. Now, these sites get some data from your social media, but it comes from all sorts of other public data that's available to you. In addition, they buy data. For instance, like like maybe you send in your warranty information on, uh, say, a new microwave. Mm-hmm. Companies will sell that data. Unless they say explicitly they're not gonna they're not gonna share it with a third party. Well, you need to when you when you register things yeah. on the internet, yeah. you need to read those things very carefully yeah. because they do offer you an opt out on those. things. Or else, you enter a sweepstakes. That is yeah, that information is shared everywhere. It is. It, it absolutely that is the right. deal. It and is. so and so they'll they'll gather all that stuff. Now you can go to many of these sites and you can opt out. It's a manual process and they make it very complicated. They make a click here, click there. I mean, they, they yes. really make it complicated like steps involved. because they don't want you to do it. So like at white pages, um, so no, Spokio is the simplest. You simply find your profile page and go to spokio.com slash opt out. And then you type or paste in a link with your email address so they can confirm it. And they'll take the data out for mm-hmm. you fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. Now, at White Pages, you have to paste a URL to your profile uh, on the um, suppression request page. You have to type why you want the information repressed or taken off. Then you have to provide your phone number to them. Wow. Think about that. Now, yeah. You know, you think about Well, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, so they get you, another piece of yeah, information. Yeah, yeah. You, you're talking to a data provider. Give them your phone number. And then they call you with a code. You'll get a call from a robot with a code, and then you have to put that code back in on the website, and then they'll take you out. Mm-hmm. Or 411.info, 
they actually charge you a fee if you want to remove your information. See, nobody says that they that they don't have to, so you, they'll do it for a fee. Now, there is a service called Delete Me. Now, Delete Me <laughs> has instructions for a handful of the most common sites. You can go there and you can read the instructions on Del- Delete Me, and they'll, they'll they'll walk you through how to get off of these sites. It takes, from what I've been reading, twenty about twenty minutes to get off each one of these sites because you've got to go through a lot of different steps. But Delete Me has a paid service where they will remove your name from 38 common sites. Now, and they'll keep checking back on a continuing basis. And you can pay them $10.79 a month, and they'll keep your name off of those sites ever, in, in perpetuity. You ever wonder why they come with these crazy dollar amounts, $10.79? Yeah, I don't know why they do that. Or you could just pay $129 a year. What no, I'm thanks. thinking, I would never get the – what I would do, I would do it for one month and get everything taken off. Then I would go back maybe in six months and sign up for another month mm-hmm. because it, it's not like the data is going to be coming on that much fast. Right. You know, so, but anyway, that is not a bad, and you can just, and you just go to joindeleteme.com and, and they'll take you off the most, most of the sites. That seemed to me the simplest way to do it if you want somebody else to do the job for you. Delete me. I believe the mafia has a program called Delete Me. Yeah, they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is very true. But <clears throat> but that that deletion is is more permanent than this deletion. <laughs> it involves a car trunk. That's and right. Garbage bags. That, exactly. Yes. Now we got uh, we got an email from uh, Rajiv in New Jelly, India. Dear Doc and Jim, I want to transfer some very, very large files uh, around a gigabyte range. What are my options? Enjoy the podcast here in India, Rajiv. Well, we use a couple of methods to transfer files, Rajiv. We use Dropbox, and then we we use WeTransfer. So Dropbox has a, um, you know, you can you can get a free account with Dropbox, which I, which actually I have, and you and you can get a paid account if you want to increase the size. And what you do is Dropbox is just linked to the um, to the um, to your computer, the files in your computer, and you can then synchronize one of your subdirectories with Dropbox. You just copy the file to that subdirectory, and boom, it's uploaded to Dropbox. Then once it's in the cloud at, in Dropbox, you can right-click on it, and you can put share, and it will create a link, which is a very complicated kind of link. You can send that link to somebody, and when they click on it, it will go straight to that file, and they can download it. <clears throat> it's really... Quite easy to do. You could share a subdirectory. You could share a file. And so that's a very easy – I do that a lot. And we've got other people who, who transfer really big files. They use WeTransfer, <clears throat> and that's basically a, a file sharing site. And you can actually use this for free, and they'll store your files for two weeks. You can upload all the files that you want to share, and they'll stay on the file if you're not paying a fee for two weeks, and then, the, and then they'll delete them. And then you simply um, – you simply share a link, a WeTransfer link, and you send that link by email to someone, and they can transfer the file. So both of those work really well. And when you got a giant file to send, that's usually the best way to go because there are maximum file sizes that many of these, e- like uh, many of the email systems, won't take a, a file more than uh, 20 megabytes that might, or 10 megabytes. And if you got really a file that's huge, you're going to have to upload it to the cloud and then send the link. 
Listen, we love your emails. We do indeed. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. It's Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2. And if you'd like to listen to us out in horse and wine country in Loudoun County, it's 104.5 FM. Learn more about the programs at Stratford University by going to stratford.edu. And if you'd like to watch us do the program, download the Periscope device to your app to your device. I always make that backwards. And follow us at WFED Tech Talk. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Cecil Howard Green... He was suggested by Bob in Maryland, one of our listeners, and I had actually featured Cecil Green back in 2013, but I thought it was time to bring him up to the decks again. It's been quite a while. Mm -hmm. Cecil Howard Green was a geophysicist who was co-founder of Texas Instruments. Now, Cecil Green was born August 6, 1900 in Whitefield, England. Cecil Green. I'm looking that up right now. I've, yeah. I've fallen down. I was I too busy cracking Cecil, jokes during okay, the mailbag. Maybe I'll just do Cecil Green. I think that's probably how... Okay. Green and his family migrated to Nova Scotia, and then to Toronto, Canada, and then finally to San Francisco. And in 1906, he witnessed the first earthquake there in San Francisco at six years old. That was his introduction to America. Now, the family moved to Vancouver, British Columbia, where Green attended the University of British Columbia for two years. And then he transferred to MIT, where he earned a B.S. in electrical engineering in 1923 and a master's in electrical engineering in 1924. Uh, He decided not to go on and get his doctorate. He just wanted to hit the field and start working, Mm -hmm. make a little dough. So for six years, he worked as an engineer for various electronics companies, General Electric... Raytheon, Wireless, Speciality, and Federal Telegraph. And he got his big break in 1930. He accepted a job in Oklahoma from Eugene McDermott as the chief 
seismographic field crew, chief of the of a seismographic field crew for the Geophysical Services Incorporated. Now, this particular what he was doing, they were basically using um, you know using sound waves to locate oil formations. That's what they were doing. They were oil prospecting. Uh huh. Now, founded in May of 1930, <clears throat> GSI, which is Geophysical Services, was one of the first prospecting companies established to perform reflection seismic exploration for petroleum. What they do is they shoot a sound wave down, and then the sound wave bounces back from different objects that are underground, like rocks or oil, and by looking at the waveform that comes back, they can reconstruct what's underground. And they can identify, uh, they can identify formations that look like they might contain oil. In 1941, Green and three partners of his bought GSI when they heard the owners planned to sell it. Now Green borrowed money. He took out a mortgage on his house. He even committed his and his wife's insurance policies as collateral. They scraped together everything they could do to buy his share of of the company, GSI. The deal closed December 6, 1941, the day before Pearl Harbor was bombed. That was really kind of a bad for technology there. Yeah, yeah. Now, GSI developed a towed magnetometer for oil exploration where they would basically, it was an array, and they would pull it over the earth, and they would, uh, they could reconstruct um, the shapes of things underground based on their magnetic behavior. It, this turned out to not look, work very well for oil. But you know what it was useful for? Finding submarines. That's interesting. So what they did is that they towed this array behind the submarine or behind a or be or they towed the array be, you know behind a battleship uh-huh. and then they could image in the water and they could see submarines based on their magnetic properties. So it was so they could get an image based on on, on basically magnetic, so it was a it was like a phased array that they would tow, and so it was at probably at that time it was probably a very highly classified application. In 1951, the company changed its name to Texas Instruments Incorporated (TI) and GSI became a wholly owned subsidiary of TI. Eventually, Green served as vice president, president, and chairman of GSI. In 19- he was a head dude in charge. He was a head dude. There's no doubt about it. In, in, in 1952, TI purchased a license to manufacture transistors from Western Electric. Now, if you remember, the transistor had been invented in, in the, around 46 or 47 at Bell Labs. And Bell Labs was not allowed to keep technology because of the antitrust agreement. So they had to, they had to sell it without making a profit on technology that they developed. They could only keep telecom technology. So Western Electric purchased the license to manufacture transistors, and TI purchased that from Western Electric. TI created the Semiconductor Products Division in 18 months. In 1954, TI designed and manufactured the first transistor radio. There you go. It was a, there you go. But it was and all— Many people are probably listening today on transistor radios it could be. because it is cutting edge. It there. is cutting edge. Yes. And, you know, but this, is, this was an integrated circuit. This is like transistors stuck into a board. Then you'd have resistors there and capacitors. You'd have whole circuits 
on circuit boards, but it was very light because you, com- compared to what they had before because they didn't, they didn't have to use vacuum tubes. Mm-hmm. And a transistor, you know, is, uh, is about the size of a P yep. in, th- in those days compared to a vacuum tube, which is the size of a pickle. <laughs> and so, yeah. you know, and so, and so you can make it much, uh, much smaller, plus, um, plus uh, transistors didn't generate much heat. The Regency TR1 used germanium transistors rather than silicon transistors, because at that time, silicon transistors were much, much more expensive. Mm-hmm. Now, germanium transistors were not really as efficient as silicon, but, but the technology hadn't evolved yet, and they were, they were just uh, sort of developing silicon transistors at the time. Now, there was a Texas Instrument researcher, Jack Kelly, who invented Jack Kilby. The f- we've talked about him, Jack right? Kilby. Yeah, Jack Kilby. Jack St. Clair Kilby, right? Yeah, Jack Kilby. Yeah, we, we've talked about him. He invented the first integrated circuit or transistorized logic circuit in September 12, 1958. See, this was the thing. Uh, transistors were made out of silicon or germanium. And so Jack figured, well, if I could make capacitors out of the same material, and you could do that by just putting down an oxide put metal on top, you could have an MOS, you know, device that would act like a capacitor. And then you could make very thin metal strips that would act like resistors. So if you could use a combination of oxides, metals, and, you know, and junctions, which form the transistors, to form entire circuits, you could make an integrated circuit. So Jack Kilby started working on this thing. And, uh, and, and, and what he did, now this is this is what happens a lot at TI because I'd, I'd worked with TI. He said, you know, they they were going out. There was a he had just started there, and there was a big Christmas break, and he didn't have any leave, so he had to work through Christmas, and nobody was there, and so he had the whole lab to himself. So he worked on this integrated circuit over Christmas, and uh, and he basically. Um, you know, he basically completed the whole thing. And they, they basically had a finished, he, he sort of invented, he got the basic ideas, but then he had to actually package it and, you know, and sell it. And they, they had to patent the thing. And he actually completed the first solid integrated circuit September 12th of 1958. Okay. So this, this was a big breakthrough. Now, Dallas was headquartered in, uh, TI was headquartered in Dallas, Texas. In 2004, they had a $12 billion revenue with 10 billion in semiconductors, and they had more than 34,000 employees worldwide. Now, Green was elected to a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 1970. The growth of TI made Green a wealthy man. He and his wife, Ida, quickly set about giving the wealth away. They contributed more than $200 million to education and medicine. For instance, there's this one building at MIT called the Green Building, which, which he— And it's not green. It's not green, but, but he, and, he donated it. Right. He died in 2003 at age tw- at the age of 102, mm. and at age 91, in 1991, he was given an honorary knighthood by Queen Elizabeth II. Interesting. So I've, I have not been able to see exactly how he pronounces his name, but in doing a little researching here, it seems like that is just the way— where it, when an e falls right after a consonant in if you're a Brit you pronounce it Cecil. Cecil. So, well, so, I so think ses- I think we're just going to go with that. We'll go with that. So germanium, not to be com- uh-huh. confused with geranium. Yes. Right. No, no. That's a rock, isn't it? Germanium. It's a semiconductor. But but it's 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 an element. Yeah. In, germ- in it's in its in its natural form, it's 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 kind of a rock, right? Yeah. No. It's a uh, it's a crystal. 
It's a crystal. Okay. So I mean, it, it's a crystal that you know it has a periodic pattern like any crystal. Do you find it in nature somewhere, or do you mine for germanium, or or, or how how do you find this stuff? Do you know? I, I'm I'm sort of I'm I'm stumbling into a Wikipedia hole so here. So even even silicon is a crystal. Yeah. I mean, st germanium is a, is an element that will grow in a periodic structure like a like a um, you know and make a crystal, and that um, and also silicon will grow as a crystal. Mm -hmm. And so you you use these in their crystalline state, and the properties of the semiconductor are derived by the periodic structure of the crystal. That's how the semiconductors actually get their magic, and that's why they're called semiconductors because the electrons that are bound to a particular site and can't move, those are the valence electrons, so they, they're in the valence band, and then there's a conduction band where electrons that have gotten loose and they can move through the thing mm -hmm. and the energy difference between the conduction band and the valence band is the band gap of the material and so germanium and uh, silicon have different band gaps but their their periodic structure is what gives them the magic properties ah, so it I is see. an element that grows in, in a periodic crystal-like structure so did you when you were a kid did you have a transistor radio uh yeah i did did you ever take it apart uh, well, I, I had one of these ones as a little point contact transistor, and you kind of move it around to tune it. I'd never seen one of those. Yeah, they, you can do that. You, you, that was those, the first transistor radios. You, you just can take a uh, like a metal point and put it on a piece of germanium, and that point no serves kidding. as the transistor, and you can kind of move it around, and the circuit will tune to different radio stations. I had no idea. Yeah. See, I, I had one as a kid, and I think it's one of the reasons why I got in, interested in this whole mess that uh -huh. we're doing here today was I would fall asleep with it under my pillow and listen to far-off radio stations or yes. the Orioles games at night. And I, that would fascinate me that at night you could pick up all of these stations around the United States that That's weren't right. anywhere close to, to where, where you are. That's right. And, you know, and we would go to the beach, and I, I learned that uh, AM signals also propagate <laughs> through the water, especially during daytime. Mm -hmm. So if you go to Ocean City, Rehoboth, the Delaware mm -hmm. beaches— you can pick up the New York stations, the 50,000-watt stations, like it, like you're in New York. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. So. You know, I just use the Internet now. I just stream everything over the Internet. It just it just, it totally takes it. I do, too. It takes the fun out of it in, the, it, in, in a sense. Well, it does. You're right. It does in a sense. And now it's a little bit different because now that stations are, are have gone from analog to digital, it's uh -huh. harder to DX at night. And that's yeah. what it's called is listening uh -huh. to far-off stations. Uh -huh. But it's harder to do that now because you either have a signal or you don't with digital. Yep. Right? That's, right. that's exactly right. There you go. All right. There you yeah. go. An unauthorized sidebar. Thank you for indulging okay. me, Doc. It's Saturday morning, and you're listening to Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. Watch it do the program by downloading the Periscope app to your device. Follow us, please, at WFED Tech Talk. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford 
Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Ross, Featuring Mr. Big Voice. With musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band. And your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. Yes, yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. Please be seated. Please be, you, we're going to pass out your germanium transistor soon. Just wait. wait. They're, they're, silicon, silicon transistor. They're clapping extra vigorously this morning because it's so cold and they want to stay warm. Yes. Yeah. They, but they, they really want to see a transistor. I they can, do. I can, I can I'm just, glad you brought one with it. you. Yeah, you know, I should have brought, I've got a whole sil, uh, integrated circuit kit that shows an I'm integrated circuit. I'm not shocked circuit. at this. News. Yeah, I should, maybe I should have brought that. Some so early, this is not just a class, a, a radio show. It's a classroom of the airways, yes. and that means we have to assess whether our class has been listening. And we do that with a pop quiz. If you get the right answer to the pop quiz, you'll get two tickets to fine dining in one of our dining rooms, and you will also get an A plus for today's show. Earlier in the show, I talked about Cecil, Cecil Howard, Cecil, Gr- Cecil. <laughs> Cecil Howard Green. He was co-founder of Texas Instruments. Now. When they were, uh, when the transistor came out, and they actually had the use to make, had the rights to make transistors, they produced the first transistor radio. What kind of transistors were in that first transistor radio made by TI? All right. If you know the answer to today's question, now's the time to put down your calculator, pick up your device, give us a call. If you're dialing from west of the Rockies. It's 877-936-9333. Calling from east of Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're listening on your submarine-mounted transistor radio in Canada, call us on the wildcard line, 877-936-9333. And as always, anyone else, anywhere else may call us on the ever-undependable international line, 877-936-39-333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Schertz. You don't have the SARS or anything, do you? No. You're coughing over there. No, I got nothing. I'm okay. just, I'm just uh, maybe a little allergy or something. Okay. Well, let's talk about the first integrated circuit, the backstory, yes. as yes, they say. Yes, yeah. Okay, as with many inventions, two people frequently have the same idea, and that happened with integrated circuits. Now, if you remember, we talked about Jack Kilby. He was hired in July. I forgot. It was the summer vacation that he worked through. And he was sitting alone in his Texas Instruments office. He had been hired only a couple of months earlier, and it was time for summer break. And everybody was taken off for the summer there in uh, Texas. And he didn't have any vacation time, so he just had to sit there by himself in the office. The halls were deserted. 
He had lots of time to think. Suddenly it occurred to him that all the parts of a circuit, not just the transistor, could be made out of silicon. Now, at the time, nobody was making capacitors or resistors out of semiconductors, and he figured, well, that could be done. So he started working on it, and that could be done built out on a single crystal wafer of silicon. So Kilby's boss liked the idea and told him to get to work on it. And by September 12th, which was like, this was in July, August, September, it was just a couple of months, Kilby had a working model. And on February 6th, Texas Instruments filed a patent. That was the first patent that had been filed for an integrated circuit. They called it the first solid state circuit. Mm -hmm. And the entire circuit could fit on the end of a pencil point. And it was shown off for the first time to other people in March. But over in California, there was another man with a similar idea. In January 1959, Robert Noyce. We've also talked about him, haven't yeah, we? Yeah, we've talked about him. He was working on a small fair, he was at a small fair child semiconductor startup company. He also realized that circuits would be made on a single chip. While Kilby had hammered out the details of making every individual component, Noyce thought of a much better way to connect the parts. That spring, Fairchild began to build what they called unitary circuits. They also applied for a patent on the idea. Knowing that TI had already filed for a patent, Fairchild wrote a highly detailed application, hoping that it would not infringe on TI's similar device. And all that detail paid off. On April 25, 1961, the Patent Office awarded the first patent for integrated circuits to Robert Noyce. Well, Kilby's application was still being analyzed. So TI lost out on that first, first patent. But both men acknowledge that they had independently conceived of the idea. And that happens many times. So there you go. The backstory on the integrated circuit. So everybody's getting an F so far. We don't have anybody with the correct answer. Ask the question okay. once again. And then I will ask an alternate okay, question. Good. All right. So now earlier in the show, I talked about Cecil, Cecil Green. And, of course, he, <laughs> um, he, he co-founded TI. And TI built a transistor radio, the Regency TR1. What kind of transistor did it contain? And I'll give you a hint. It's not a silicon transistor. That's right. Okay. And it rhymes, rhymes with a plant. And the other, <laughs> my, the alternative, um, let's call this, um, uh, this is Baltimore City Public School question. Okay. Okay. What does TI stand for? 877-936-9333. I shouldn't have said that. I uh, know. Oh, well. You shouldn't have said that, Jim. You're going to get in trouble. I, probably. You are going to get in trouble, Jim. <laughs> okay. Huawei has been charged with racketeering. Yeah, this is this is a wild conspiracy story. to steal trade secrets. I'm telling you, the U.S. government is going down on Huawei because they do not want them to put their 5G uh, technology out in any country because they believe it's a huge security risk. Mm-hmm. The federal court in Brooklyn, New York, charged Huawei Technologies and two U.S. subsidiaries with a conspiracy to violate the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. That's called the RICO Act, R-I-C-O. Mm-hmm. Yep. The 16-count indictment also adds a charge of conspiracy to steal trade secrets stemming from the China-based company alleged long-running practice of using fraud and deception to misappropriate sophisticated technology from U.S. counterparts. The indicted defendants include Huawei, four officials, and unofficial subsidiaries, said 
as well as Huawei's chief financial officer, Wan Chao Meng. And she's in jail in yeah, Canada. She's been in jail for more than a year now. Yeah, she's been waiting for uh, you know, waiting to, you know, for extradition to the US. The new charges in this case relate to the alleged decade-long efforts by Huawei and several of its subsidiaries, both in the US and the People's Republic of China, to misappropriate intellectual property from six US technology companies. The misappropriated Property included trade secrets, copyrighted works such as source code, user's manual for Internet routers, antenna technology, and robot testing equipment. The means and methods of the alleged misappropriation include entering into confidentiality agreements with the owners of intellectual property and then violating those agreements by stealing the technology, recruiting employees from other companies, and directing them to misappropriate their former employer's intellectual property, using proxies such as professors working at research institutes to obtain and provide technology to the defendants. Huawei's efforts to steal trade secrets and other sophisticated technology were successful and the methods of deception are costing the U.S. billions a year. Mm-hmm. And the State Department is trying to crack down on this. I think it's about time because I think they have been very successful. Okay. So a lot of their routing technology for 5G, they stole from the U.S. Interesting. Yes. All right, no. Uh, wait a minute. Oh. Why is he there? We don't need him. No, we don't need him. Mr. No, we don't need him. We're done with him for one day. Yeah, go back. We to, need you, this. Go back to your office, Mr. Big Boy. <laughs> 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 we have somebody who'd like to play our game. Let's go to line. Why? It's line one. What a shock. It's uh, Ken calling from Baltimore. Good morning, Ken. Wait a minute. Hang on. I did this the wrong way. There you go. Ken, how are you? All right, fine. Good. Okay. I hope you weren't offended by, by my uh, my ancillary question. I think that... we should call the secondary question the everyone gets a ribbon question. Yeah, that's right. The okay. Cecil, Howard, Cecil Howard, of course, co-founder of TI. And uh, so the question is, uh, they, uh, I don't know which question. The, the first question know. is, what Ken, kind of, what kind of transistor us? did the uh, Regency TR1 transistor radio have? I was going to say, Ken, why don't you tell us which or, question you want to answer? Or the other question is, what does TI stand yeah. for? All or, right, you're up, Ken. Batter up. All right, I'll try the first one, germanium. Perfect. That's right, you got That's it. That's the one we wanted. Thank that you so much. Wanted. Excellent. Ken, thank you so much for bailing us out of this mess. Hang you on just a did not have a confidence in, our, in the class, Jim. The teacher must have more confidence in no, the students. No, I just realized we have 60 <laughs> minutes to get through this, yeah. and I figured we needed an answer. Hang okay. on a second, Ken. Thanks for calling, and uh, we're going to send you back to uh, <laughs> Kevin. We're sitting in for Andrew today. It's Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio. Heard on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2, and in Loudoun County, 104.5 FM. Watch us do the program by downloading the Periscope app to your device. Follow us at WFED Tech Talk. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford 
Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. Hang on a second here. We're having a little trouble getting Ken back into the master control. Ken, we're going to hang up on you here. Call us back, 877-936-9333, and that way Kevin can get your information because I can't seem to put it on hold right. I'm sure this is operator error, and I had too much germanium for for breakfast. It could be. It could be. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm going to continue on while I I break everything. Okay. Uh, Ransomware is going to hit us every 11 seconds in 2021. Cybersecurity Ventures has predicted that globally, businesses in 2020 will fall victim to ransomware every 11 seconds, down from the, you know, modest uh, rate of every 14 (laughs) seconds in 2019. Now, the estimated cost of ransomware to businesses will top $20 billion in 2021, and that global damages relating to cybercrime will reach $6 trillion. Now, the estimate includes the cost to restore and mitigate following a ransomware attack and is not limited to the actual ransom payments. There's a lot more to it than that. The recovery cost for a ransomware attack is substantial and companies would do well to cover these costs when budgeting over the next few years. It is reported that 91% of cyber attacks begin with spear phishing emails where they'll send in an email with a link and then people click on the link and it prompts them to put in usernames and passwords and they just reveal their credentials to anybody. And so businesses should start by educating their employees immediately not to rely on email and be highly vigilant of any kind of email traffic and links and attachments because it's always the same attack vector. And it turns out it's very successful because of the weakest element of our security system, which is the human individual in the loop. Mobile a voting app that was used in four states has security flaws. Now, this voter mo- voter modi- <laughs> mobile voting app was, Easy for you to yeah, say. was used in West Virginia and several other states, and it has elementary security flaws that allow anyone to see and intercept the votes. The attacker would also be able to alter the user's vote and trick the user into believing that their vote was transmitted accurately. The app is called... VOATS, V-O-A-T-Z, is problems without handles authentication between the voter's mobile phone and the back-end server. And it allows an attacker to impersonate the user's phone as as we have a man in the middle of attack. Even more surprising, although the makers of VOATS have touted the use of blockchain technology, the MIT researchers found that the blockchain wasn't actually used that way. And as VOATS claims... And it, this blockchain provides no additional security. The research was conducted by two graduate students at MIT's Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Lab. And it was really quite a good result. They actually sent the, the results to, uh, to, to Homeland Security so people could look at it. 
one of the problems with these voting apps is that people make the software. It's not independently verified or certified. And this is sort of the same problem that we had with the, um, you know, with, with the software up there in, the, um, in, Iowa? in, in Iowa with, mm-hmm. with the caucuses. So this was developed. The company says that it's, that it's done all of these great things. The states don't know anything about software, software security right. or anything, and it hasn't been independently verified. So I'm going to tell you, I think you've got real problem with voter fraud once you get voting from cell phones. Well, why are the states so hell-bent on doing something that they have no idea what they're doing? Why do they want to use these voter apps? Do you have any idea? Oh, well, uh, yeah, they, they, they wanted to find a way for military personnel to vote when they're deployed. Okay. That was, and that's really a valid point because it sure, took it yes. took weeks for those, for those. Right, and it would speed up the the yeah, and they, the they and also process. for disabled people who, who who can't get in there. So there is a reason to make voting more convenient for the um, for the customer, as they would say, for the citizen. And so they were trying to to accommodate their citizens. Um, so I do th- I, I do think it's it's a worthy objective, but. I um, I think it has to be so, done properly. So in Iowa, and Iowa's obviously a weird situation because they yeah. didn't actually vote. You stand in a corner and get counted. Yeah. The the, the voting app there was used only by the the uh, the polling place right. managers, right, to download the right. vote. Right. Right. So the, this one would would allow, would allow to, you have, to vote. It, yeah, but this one with this app, you, you could have a man in the middle attack, mm-hmm, and sure. then you could change the vote on the way in. Now and it and the thing is the MIT's lab was never given access to the software. They actually downloaded the app themselves. They reverse engineered it. They figured out how it worked and then they created servers that emulated the servers that the app was talking to. So they were never given copies of the software itself. That's part of the problem. These companies do this thing in a vacuum and you mm-hmm. don't you don't really know how secure it is. So I think there's going to have to be some sort of software certification process that these guys go through before it can be used for voting. I, I think it's a well, serious problem. And the states, I don't think, are able to manage this themselves. Well, and this is one of the things you guys deal with at Stratford a lot. And it's yeah. one of the big things. I mean, we talked before, the big next thing is cybersecurity, right? Cybersecurity is a big thing. So. And, and and the way that you learn how to protect is to go in and hack and, and break it to begin yep. with, right? That's right. That's what you do. And that, so then you learn how to to make it safer but blockchain technology properly implemented is a way to ensure identity accuracy and uh, so i do think blockchain technology is a great technology for use in these voting apps because you can't if it's implemented correctly you cannot really um, game it mm-hmm. but it wasn't implemented correctly they, they 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 had the name of it but they didn't implement it correctly in the back end gotcha Okay, Homeland Security is uh, is using phones at the border to track down people as they're crossing the border. <laughs> Department of Homeland Security has been purchasing cell phone locator data and using it to track activity near the U.S.-Mexican border. Now, the datedly has reportedly led to arrests after law enforcement officers saw where people were crossing the border and traced the data back to specific people. So what they're doing... Cell phone companies have this data. They're buying the data from the cell phone company. And they can see people's cell phone crossing the border, and they can see where the person finally ended up staying in the U.S. 
so they can track the person who they arrest back to the actual crossing incident. It's like shooting a fish in a barrel, right? Yeah, so the location data comes from a commercial database composed of information compiled by users on users by marketing companies. Mm. Marketing companies are getting this, and they're using this data to see what you do, where you're going. So they're getting marketing data. It's the kind of data that marketing companies have on all of us. And all of this data collection can lead to an incredibly revealing portrait of an individual's behavior. And this means that the government can obtain very revealing data on a broad swath of people without going through the courts or relying on questionable legal procedures. It can just buy the information outright like anyone else. Department of Homeland Security has confirmed that they purchased the data. This is actually a workaround. Yeah. It's it, it's a workaround to— A legal um, workaround, right? Yeah, it's a legal workaround to what would be an illegal activity. It's, it's probably worth looking at that further, I think, you yeah. know? Yeah, mm-hmm. The FCC reaches a deal with the satellite industry for more 5G spectrum. See, this 5G requires more and more spectrum. You need more bandwidth to get the throughput. And, and the FCC is trying to reprogram or reallocate bandwidth. And use it more efficiently. And it turns out there were a group of bands that had been allocated to satellite companies for, you know, like sending data up to the satellite, getting it back. And what the FCC wanted to do, they wanted to buy back this bandwidth from the satellite companies and then give them other other frequencies. And so the FCC plans to buy back the spectrum from the satellite companies, and they're not really giving them a choice, but they're going to pay them from 3 to $5 billion for, the, uh, for buying back that, the spectrum. It's the so-called C-band spectrum, and they'll pay them 3 to $5 million to move to another frequency. Um, the money that's going to be used to pay them is going to be derived from the auction when they auction off that, fi- that spectrum for 5G use. Now, the C-band designation is by the... IEEE, and it's for the portion of the electromagnetic spectrum that goes from 4 gigahertz to 8 gigahertz. That's the C-band. And the C-band spectrum that they're talking about goes from 3.7 gigahertz to 4.2 gigahertz in frequencies. And this is the mid-band range, and this is considered crucial to 5G. So I have to say the cell phone companies are ecstatic that the FCC is doing this. By the way, this frequency has been allocated in other countries already, the same frequency band. So if they can get that frequency band allocated in the U.S., then that means your cell phones can use the same frequency as you roam around the world. Hmm. Listen, we love, love, love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. We'd also like you to go to the Stratford University website, www.stratford.edu. Check out our programs in cybersecurity, networking, software engineering, uh, information systems, or it could be healthcare, it could be nursing, medical assisting, could be computer arts, culinary arts, it could be business or accounting. And tell me you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1 800 444 0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.